Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 30, Recapitulating the Wilderness. And in this episode, I'd like to continue our discussion of Matthew chapter 4, the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, but look at the exact same passage from a very different perspective than we looked at it from in our episode number 29. And so this may be new to some of you. You may have never come across a concept quite like this, but I'm introducing it here because of its extreme importance in understanding vast, vast portions of the Old Testament in a way that is faithful as a Christ follower and is faithful to the way that the Bible intends Christ followers to read the Old Testament. And so I'm very thankful that you're tuned into this. If you have not yet listened to episode 29, I would encourage you to do that before you come to this episode because it's going to build on what we've looked at before. But let's just go ahead and get right into it. I'd like to begin this week's episode in the same way that I began last week's, and that is simply to read the temptation narrative of Jesus in the wilderness from Matthew's gospel in Matthew chapter 4, and then I will draw your attention to some observations that are present right there in the passage, but you might not be aware of. So again, starting in verse 16 of Matthew 3, it says, When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now, as we talked through a little bit last episode, um, Jesus was recapitulating or repeating or summing up or capturing a recap is kind of the word we might be familiar with in our common usage. He is repeating something that once took place in a garden with the first man and the first woman. And we walked through how the temptation of the enemy is the same in attacking us in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and in the pride of life. And we left it there on the individual human level. And that was okay for one reading of the temptation narrative. But this week, I've titled the podcast episode Recapitulating the Wilderness because while there was a garden scene that introduced sin first into the world, if you remember at the end of Genesis 3, the first man and the first woman were sent out of the garden, east of Eden, into the wilderness. 
And the wilderness, quite frankly, is the place that the Bible will refer to often as being the place where mankind is apart from God, or he is being tested in some way, or he is um, not where he desires to be and not where God ultimately wants him to be. And you also remember, I, I hope, from the way back at the beginning, but the second podcast episode, we looked a little bit at Genesis 12, the first few verses, and the call of Abram to be from from God to be made into a great nation, and through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And if you remember, I pointed out in that episode that the word bless or blessing is used five times in those short three verses, and the word curse is actually found also five times in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And so the call of Abram in Genesis 12 is the Lord God's attempt by calling a people for himself He is attempting to reverse the effects of the curse on the world. And so the call of God's people, what will eventually become the nation of Israel, the call of the people of God into existence, to forming them, to redeeming them from Egypt, to giving them a law, to setting them up in a promised land, to erecting a temple and creating the worship of the people, their entire purpose as a nation exists solely to become the means through which God will bless the world and undo the effects of the curse that cover the entire globe. Now, the reason why I bring that up is because for Jesus to endure in his own wilderness experience, the temptations that once were present to all humanity in the garden, he also deals with the fact that for you and for me, most of our temptations the times when we are most tempted to sin, are oftentimes also places in the wilderness. They're places where we might feel distant from God, or we might not be in as close of a relationship with Him as we would like. And of course, we know that doesn't mean we're out of step with Him. We might feel that way. It doesn't mean that's necessarily true. It simply means that that's where we are experiencing those temptations. And so one thing you may not have noticed, um, you may have if you've studied this passage before or have heard teaching on this passage, what I have chosen to do in episode 29 by drawing your attention to Genesis 3, 6, where Eve sees that the tree is good for food and a delight to the eyes and to be desired to make one wise, and then to make the connection with 1 John 2, that the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life are in fact the same three temptations deep being dealt with by Jesus in, in his own wilderness temptation is exactly correct. Um, but what I did not spend any time doing was taking a look at the kinds of places in the Bible that Jesus chooses to quote from when defeating these temptations. And I think there's a couple of reasons why I think he does it. And I'll just share with you a little of my own experience coming across this. Um, But it is interesting to note that in all three circumstances where the enemy tempts Jesus in a particular way, Jesus defeats the temptations of the enemy by quoting from the Old Testament. So he quotes the words that God has said in his own word for the benefit of his people and for the ultimate salvation of the world. He uses the truth that he finds there to counteract the lies and the deception and therefore the temptation that the serpent is offering him. 
Now, if you study this a little bit further, if you have a study Bible or if you have a Bible that lists cross-references in the side margins or at the bottom of the page of your Bible, you'll notice something even more interesting. That Jesus doesn't quote from, let's say, Isaiah, which is one of the the most often quoted Old Testament books in the New Testament, if not maybe the Psalms. He doesn't quote from the Psalms either. In fact, Jesus quotes in defense of his own position as the Son of God. He quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. And he does so in all three temptations. And I had a a friend years ago say to me, Um, Or maybe I read this in a book. I'm not exactly sure which, but either way, I, I remember the phrase and it was, if your ability to defeat temptation depended upon your knowledge of the book of Deuteronomy, how well would you do? And I remember the way the question was asked, and it was kind of asked tongue-in-cheek. It was kind of asked in a serious tone, but virtually everyone that I've ever jokingly uh, asked that question to has sort of laughed and then shrugged because Deuteronomy is not usually one of the books of the Bible that too many people today are all that familiar with. Um, It's unfortunate that that's the case because Deuteronomy is one of the most beautiful books of the Old Testament. And I know maybe I'm a Bible nerd and I'm willing to embrace that. But the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomos, simply means Deutero second, and Namos means law. So it's the second law. And Deuteronomy as a book is in fact a, um, a, a basically a large speech, almost a large sermon written by Moses, spoken by Moses, to the second generation of Israelites who are about ready to enter the promised land. The first generation of Israelites, after coming out of Egypt, refused to believe that the Lord was powerful enough to bring them into the promised land. And so he allowed them to die in the wilderness. And their children, who were too young to understand what was taking place, when they grew up and became adults, It is to this group of people that Moses is giving this speech, telling the people about all that the Lord has done for them as a people, which they may or may not have been too young to remember when it originally happened. But he's repeating these events for the people, giving them the law the second time, telling them about their history the second time so that they will remember who the Lord is, what he has done for Israel, what he has promised to do for them, and then it is a call for them to trust in those promises, unlike their parents, and thereby grant entrance into the promised land. And so we looked last week at the fact that Jesus, in being called a son, was oftentimes known or viewed as the coming Messiah, the coming king. The kings of Israel were often called sons of God. But I want to point out to you that they are not the only ones in the Old Testament who are referred to as the sons of God. And this is a really, really interesting phrase. It's one that you almost could miss if you don't know what you're looking for. But when Moses is called by God at the beginning of Exodus, um, the beginning of the book of Exodus, called by the Lord to go into Egypt and to tell Pharaoh to let his people go, the Lord God says to Moses in chapter 4 of Exodus, verses 22 and 23, here's what it says. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. 
And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Now, again, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but the way that the Lord speaks to Pharaoh through Moses is to tell Moses that Israel as a whole is his son. He speaks of Israel in the singular, and we know he means to speak of him in the singular because he compares the nation being his son with Pharaoh and his son, which you know if you follow the rest of the story that Pharaoh's son does in fact die because Pharaoh refuses to let God's son go. And so what is really, really interesting is not only is the call of Abram to the people of or for the forming of the nation of Israel, not only is that a call to reverse the effects of the curse, but what you have in the Garden of Eden is you have all humanity stumbling as represented by their representative head, Adam, and also Eve. But then if Israel is called, in fact, to become what will fill up what, what, what will be God's answer to the problem that happened to all humanity, then God also appoints the nation as a whole to stand in for or to represent all of humanity. And so this is important. We've been talking about this now for a few podcast episodes, but you see it happened here. We, we, we saw it happen in Exodus 32 where Aaron stands in for the people and you do not know whose fault it is that the golden calf is constructed. Is it Aaron's fault or is it the people's fault? Did Aaron make the calf or did the people make the calf? And the answer is both. And here it's much more the same. Israel was known as the son of God. Their representative head, their leaders, their kings were also called sons of God. Not because Israel was no longer God's son, but because those kings represented the people. And when the kings faithfully followed the Lord, so did the people. And when the kings committed idolatry and bowed down and worshiped false gods, so did the people. And so here, for Jesus to be called the Son of God, really at this second level now, is not simply a representative of all humanity. Jesus is actually also representative of the nation of Israel as God's Son. And so when a voice from heaven comes and says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, God is actually speaking simultaneously of two levels. Jesus, as a representative son of God, like Adam, one who represents all humanity, and Jesus as a representative son of God, like Israel, who ultimately represents Israel. And the reason why we know this is true is because Jesus quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. And you might laugh and say, oh my goodness, what on earth does this have anything to do with, with the temptation? I'm going to tell you, which is precisely the point of this whole episode. In the book of Deuteronomy, shortly after Moses reminds the people of the Ten Commandments, he reminds them of the events that the Lord brought about in delivering them from slavery in Egypt. He reminds them about the crossing of the Red Sea and about how the Lord brought them to Mount Sinai. And he begins to explain to these second generation 
second, not, not second generation Christians, second generation Israelites who have been redeemed from Egypt. He explains to them about their history. And interestingly enough, Jesus not only quotes from Deuteronomy, but he quotes twice from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and once from Deuteronomy chapter 8. And in just a moment, I'm going to read for you each of those passages and explain what they mean. But in Deuteronomy chapters 6, 7, and 8, if you go back and read this section, these passages in the Old Testament given in Deuteronomy to the second generation of Israelites redeemed from Egypt are three specific chapters telling the children of these unfaithful Israelite parents the specific series of events and lack of faith and lack of trust in the Lord and disobedience and waywardness and rebellion that led directly to them not being able to inherit the promises of the promised land. In other words, Deuteronomy 6, 7, and 8 are written specifically to recount, to remind, to point the younger generation back to some events that happened which do nothing but highlight the failure of their parents, the first generation of Israelites, to trust in the Lord and to believe in His promises. Now, it is not coincidental that these are the sections of Deuteronomy that Jesus chooses to quote when he is defeating the serpent's temptations. Why is this the case? It's the case because these are precisely the same three temptations that the serpent got Eve to buy into in the garden. And he also victoriously gets Israel to buy into once they are freed from slavery in Egypt. I'd like to just look then at the three temptations of Jesus and compare what Jesus says to what Deuteronomy says and what this teaches us about the nation of Israel. So you know that the first temptation is to for Jesus to command these stones to become loaves of bread. And Jesus simply responds by quoting Deuteronomy 8 verse 3. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, if we turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 8, as I told you, chapters 6, 7, and 8 are recounting for the second generation of Israelites what their first generation parents failed to do in the wilderness. And in verse 2 of Deuteronomy 8, it says, You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now it's interesting, and I didn't repeat this or I haven't said this yet, but if you know the wilderness wanderings, the Israelites were... Um, forced to wander aimlessly for 40 years in the wilderness as a result of their failure to obey. And it is not coincidental that Jesus is sent out into the wilderness 
to be tempted by the devil for 40 days, he is recapitulating one day for every year that Israel wandered around aimlessly in the wilderness waiting for this first generation of Israelites to die off. And the Lord tells them that he let them reach points when they would get hungry so that he would find out what was in their hearts. Was there going to be trust in him to provide them for, with food or were they going to complain and bicker, which they did time and time and time again, wondering where are we going to get food? Ah, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and as 1 John 2 tells us, the lusts or the desires of the flesh. Yes, Israel as a whole, Israel, the son of God, the community of people God commissioned to be his means through which he would reverse the effects of the fall, the people as a whole experienced the same temptation of the lust of the flesh, bickered, complained, argued over food when God corrects them saying, the reason I wanted to bring you through this was to find out what was in your heart so that you would know that you are not simply a physical being who needs to have those appetites and lusts and cravings met, but that you also are someone who needs to live in communion with me. And they failed to do that. And their parents spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness and eventually died off. Jesus, in a similar wilderness position, does not do this but rather quotes the very thing that Israel should have done in the wilderness and failed to do and comes out victorious in the first temptation, the temptation of the lust of the flesh. And so Satan moves on and he says, fine, if you really want to trust the Lord that much, if you really think he's going to provide for you that much, then why don't you prove it? Why don't you go to the pinnacle of the temple? Why don't you jump off? Why? Because, and remember the enemy quotes Psalm 91, talking about the protection that the Lord will have for his chosen, for his special anointed one, that being King David at the time that Psalm 91 was penned. But why don't you prove that God really loves you? Don't you want to know that you're going to be cared for by him, that you're going to be protected by him? I mean, after all, you could get really irresponsible and really sloppy from just throwing your hands up and saying, God's going to provide for me. Why don't you prove it? Why don't you make sure that he really will? And what does Jesus say? You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, in quoting from Deuteronomy 6 this time, actually Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 6, 16, and it simply says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Now, if you're not familiar with Deuteronomy, you might have no idea what Masa even means. But as you tested him at Masa, in order to find out what that means, you'll have to actually back up to Exodus chapter 17. And we're, we're on a, for a little bit of a joy ride, a little bit of a Old Testament exploration. But if you go back to the book of Exodus, Israel has recently been redeemed from Egypt. In Exodus 16, they come into their first encounter with manna, which we just had referenced in Deuteronomy 8, that the Lord provided food for them. But the people began to be thirsty, and they began to crave water. And they complained to Moses that there was no water for them to drink, and they began to question whether or not the Lord was even with them and had not chosen maybe to bring them out of Egypt just to kill them. Why did you bring us out of Egypt, they say to Moses, to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Man, I mean, goodness, do we really think that the Lord ransomed his people from slavery and cruelty and injustice just so that he could kill them 
by refusing them water? That doesn't seem consistent. And yet, this is what the people actually found themselves believing. And so the Lord tells Moses to um, st- he will stand before him on a rock at Horeb and Moses shall strike the rock and water will come out and the people will drink. And it says Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel and verse 7 of Exodus 17 says he called the name of that place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? And this is really the key phrase. Is the Lord among us or not? Will the Lord really care for us? Will the Lord really provide for us? Will the Lord really save us when we need saving? This is the exact temptation that the serpent or that that Satan himself is offering to Jesus in the wilderness. Will God really protect you? If you jump off of a place where harm is really about to come to you, will the Lord God who's promised to protect you really do so? And I draw your attention to this because in Israel's wanderings, in Israel's time after being ransomed from Egypt, when they came to a place where they needed water, and understand, this isn't a fickle temptation. We need water. Water is a real need. It is something that quenches, and the Psalms are are dripping, you know, metaphor, you know, pun not intended, but dripping with reference after reference to to the the soul quenching waters of the presence of the Lord and and things of that sort. And so we know this isn't just physical, and yet water is incredibly important. But to begin to question whether the Lord is really with you, or whether the Lord is really for you. Because you do not have at the ready the things that you believe you need to have, and then to question as a result that the Lord isn't really among us, or to at least ask, is he really among us? Did he just leave us here? Does he really care? These are issues at a deep emotional level, and Jesus wrestles with them the same way you and I do, but the same way Israel did, and yet Israel failed And Moses is only telling the second generation of Israelites this story specifically to show them, here's where your parents failed. We don't want you to do the same thing. And so Jesus answers the same way Moses tells the second generation of Israelites, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And so Satan takes him to a very high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and says, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Here, Jesus doesn't go too far back. He only dips back three verses, actually. But it says, um, I'll read a couple of the verses here, but he talks about uh, when the Lord gives you a land that you, you know, good cities that you did not build and houses full of good things that you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples um, who are around you. 
And so in this passage in Deuteronomy, the Lord is reminding the people, I'm the one who's going to make these things abundant for you. I'm the one that's going to provide victory to you. I'm the one that's going to provide security for you. I'm the one that's going to grow your crops. I'm the one that's going to build your cities. I'm the one that's going to clear out the enemies all around you. And when all of that happens, do not forget that it was me who did it. And do not think that this is a matter of your own kingdom, building your own way, making a name for yourselves like the people at Babel once did. This is a temptation that Jesus faces where the enemy is offering him all the kingdoms of the world without going through the struggle, the suffering, the rejection, and the death first. And what does Jesus say in response? Again, quoting from the section of Deuteronomy 6 that is recounting the failure of the people of God, the Son of God, to fully trust Him in the wilderness, He simply says to them, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Now verse 11 of chapter 4 is very, very fitting in Matthew because it simply says, I almost lost my place. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The devil has nothing left. The Son of God, the representative head of all humanity, the second Adam son, and the people of God, the community, the people God chose to be the means by which he was going to reverse the effects of the curse, Israel, his son, the Son of God, Jesus, the representative Israelite, and the representative of all humanity has defeated the enemy's temptations. He recapitulates, he repeats the failure that happened by Israel in their wilderness experience while Jesus himself is in the wilderness. He is doing what Israel failed to do, but he is standing in the place of Israel as their representative head. This is crucial for you and I to grasp as we are readers of the Bible and of the Old Testament because almost 80% of our Bibles is Old Testament. It is pre-Jesus. And when we read these passages, we are talking about the people of Israel. We are talking about the Jewish people. And we follow along as God prophesies things about them, as he promises judgment coming, as he promises blessings coming. And we need to understand our relationship to all of the promises and to all of the blessings that are coming from those Old Testament passages. And what is happening here with Jesus is a humongous clue and a humongous key for you and for me to understand how it is that we are able to utilize or receive or take part in the many, many blessings and even promises of judgment that are to be found in God's directives or God's words or his messages to his people, the nation of Israel. Because in Jesus, we find a representative of all humanity, a representative head, and we find a true and faithful Israelite one who will receive all of the promises of blessing that were promised to Israel and one who will also receive the promises of coming judgment because Jesus is recapitulating their failure in the wilderness. He is going back through the scene that they went through which proved that they also found themselves under the control of the enemy. 
and all of their attempts at worshiping the Lord, all of their receiving of the law, all of their temple construction and temple worship, all of their sacrificial system was marred from this point forward the same way that all humanity's relationship with the Lord was marred. And just because they were his quote-unquote chosen people does not somehow give them a hall pass. The nation of Israel is still a part of all humanity, and as a result, they too need redeemed. We talked about this in episode 27, priests in need of a priest. This is exactly what Jesus is doing. He is stepping in the place, recapitulating, walking back through the very scene that Israel as God's people, as God's son, failed to remain faithful to the Lord and thereby conquering the temptations of the enemy. Where Israel failed, Jesus succeeds. Why? Because Jesus is the true and faithful Israelite. Jesus is the true and faithful son. Jesus is the true and faithful Israel. That is precisely who he is. And in episode 31, possibly episode 32, we are going to explore this more. Because what Matthew is doing in his gospel is setting you up, is setting me up to understand what is the Christian's relationship to the Old Testament. Jesus is the hinge on which everything swings. And we're going to continue to explore Jesus because we will not understand the Old Testament at all unless we understand who Jesus is and what he's come to do. So that's all the time we have for this week's episode. I would love to hear questions from you. Like I said, this might be new to some of you. And if it is, and if you have objections or you disagree or you want to ask me to pursue certain topics further, I would love to, and I'd love to hear from you. So you can email me at unbindingthebible at gmail.com. Others of you have my phone number or you've got my personal email, or we see each other from week to week. So whatever um, form of communication works best for you, that is great. Thank you so much again for those who are supporting this podcast on a monthly basis. Thank you for an anonymous supporter who just came in this past week. It's such an encouragement to know that this podcast is far-reaching and is being able to positively impact lots of people. So I hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time.